Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. It's uh, 15th of January 2022. Uh, I guess we made it if you're listening to this podcast uh, since we're recording this on Thursday the 4th of November uh, 2021. Uh, with us today is Dr. Daniel Rogers, a physicist, author, and an expert in cryptography, cybercrime, disinformation, and security. He's currently working as a CTO at Global Disinformation Index, where they aim to disrupt, defund, and downrank uh, disinformation sites. So, welcome, Dr. Rogers. Um, uh, thanks so much for having me. Really, really uh, glad yeah. to be here. Um, first question, let's let's uh, travel down the memory lane of uh, of let's call it the digital uh, the digital disinformation uh, ecosystem. Uh, how did we get from uh, Macedonian teens doing it for the kicks in 2015 to the fact or to the state of 2021 or 22 where it appears that disinformation is this global industry? that includes all kinds of political and commercial actors and that uh, yeah nobody nobody can really uh, can really address this issue and and solve it for for let's say uh, the normal digital user yeah it's a, it's a great question actually um so i i teach a class at nyu uh on disinformation and narrative warfare and as one of one of our sort of class exercises i I have you know, I usually have about a dozen you know graduate level students in this class and and I say okay you know we we learn about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and I say okay go find like another company like Cambridge Analytica the sort of like dark influence peddler sort of company mm. um, and the last time we did this exercise it was fascinating because you know every single student in the class came back with a different company that they profiled. And no two were the same, which was a, was really kind of a great a great meta lesson uh, in just how robust this industry is. Um, you know that you you send twelve people off to go look for you know similar kinds of companies, and they all come back with a different one mm. uh, in a different part of the world, and uh, and it just tells you kind of as you say what a what a global and robust kind of influence peddling businesses is. Uh, mm. I will say I don't think that it didn't exist in 2016. Mm-hmm. I think it just wasn't in the public consciousness that that it existed. And so what started as a very sort of easily understandable threat model of Macedonian teenagers, so to speak, um, which which was an, which was an easy thing to pin it all on. And, and mm-hmm. honestly, not, in my view, kind of the core of the problem. I mean, even back then, you know, a, a good friend of mine at, at, at PBS here in the U.S. did a profile of a of a you know, of a, of a guy in in uh, Napa Valley, California, who, you know, lived in his parents' basement and, and did the same thing that the Macedonian teenagers did, but scaled way up and, and a lot more effective, honestly. Um, as a just reminder that it's not, you know, here in the U.S. at least, it's not just the kids in Macedonia, it's it's the kids and adults here. And and I think what we what's happened since 2016 is simply the public's you know, understanding and the revelation of the existence of this massive, robust industry, mm. uh, rather than kind of you know the the industry didn't grow up between 2016 and now it just was revealed. Um, mm. Not to say it hasn't matured and expanded, and you know, plenty of people kind of 
putting their hats into the ring. But I think the business model was alive and well in 2016. We just were much less aware of it. Hmm. So, so what exactly is the the business model? How does it work in terms of, let's say, economical or or other aspects that are that are mainly, let's say, unaddressed when you know people are discussing uh, um, disinformation, propaganda, and uh, other similar uh, contexts. Yeah, I, I I think that that if you think about all the different reasons that people, you know pedal disinformation on, on the web, the primary motivator for most of the people who do it is is financial. And and the reason is this, the, the entire internet right now, the dominant internet business model is around capturing attention and monetizing that attention. And and the the big players, right, Google and Facebook and YouTube, et cetera, they do they do this to the scale of some of the largest companies in the history of the world at this point. Right. Facebook's business model is through whatever means necessary, capture your attention, keep your attention on whatever platform of theirs you're on, and then auction as many ads to you as they can get away with while they have that attention. Mm. And and the thing is, is is everyone is kind of in the same market for the sort of fixed resource of human attention at this point. And 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 this now touches, you know, the whole world. I mean, I mean, well over half the world's population now, their reality is shaped by, you know, a combination of the Facebook newsfeed engine and the YouTube recommendation engine. Mm. And and so everyone and this includes broadcast, right? Fox News is 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 in the same market for people's attention as Breitbart and Facebook. Everyone is vying for some of your eyeballs so they can show you ads. And and so it just comes down to a, a game of who can do it better algorithmically and then it 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 spins off kind of uh sort of uh you know other parasitic business models that that do the same thing on top of that platform right so facebook's in the in the game of of using other people's content to capture attention and then those people and and, and the, the trade is they reward those people who create that content mm. and so it's kind mm. of everyone is in a big milieu of capturing your attention and so whether it's the, the behemoth business models like Facebook or, you know, the individual entrepreneur who's running a page on Facebook that's that's then driving traffic to a site, you know, Patriot viral dot info or whatever to mm -hmm. to to then soak that attention using Google ads. Right. So they may, might even pay Facebook a little bit of money to promote that page, drive traffic to it. And then monetize that traffic using a combination of, say, display advertising through, you know, most often, you know, Google's display network or something like that, mm. um, as well as, you know, merchandising. Now you sell the you sell the team jersey on the on the site, and you solicit donations using PayPal, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, you're you're making a pretty good living just running a page full of, you know, viral, emotionally charged, divisive disinformation whether or not it's true has no bearing on mm. on on the on how lucrative that business model is mm. and and there are people out there who've demonstrated that it can they can be hugely successful i mean you know uh, uh, some you know friends of ours did a did a documentary in france recently uh, where they profiled uh, jim hof the the publisher of the gateway pundit one of mm -hmm. the most notorious outlets and and you know they they sat with him in his mansion outside of st louis and talked about you know how he brings in the same number of viewers as Fox News every month, and you know it's just him and a small staff, and he's just he's just raking in the cash, you know. Mm. And mm. so I, I think that's 
that's the business model, right? The, the entire internet, internet is around capturing your attention mm-hmm. uh, at, at any mean, by any means necessary. And, and the major platforms do that by warping our individual realities. They take all of the data they, they collect on us. They, they compute automatically what sorts of content from that kind of now at this point, infinite sea of content that they have in order to keep our attention. And then they just keep hammering that and showing us that in order to keep us on platform. And, and, and when you, when you kind of think about it that way, when half the world's population at this point, or over half the world's population, when the reality is shaped by these warped business model, or there's these business models that consist of warping our realities in these very personalized ways, it's kind of no wonder that none of us can agree on, you know, basic sets of facts like mm. the earth being round. So, mm. um, so that, that to me, it's, it's, that's the business model. Um, yeah. and, it, and it starts yeah. at the top and flows down you know, to, mm. to the individuals. How does, let's say, uh, the end user tie into the business model? You, you wrote an op-ed in, in The Time in uh, March uh, this year uh, titled, uh, This information is among the greatest threats to our democracy. Here are three key ways to fight it. And you basically make a case that it's not about the content, it's about the algorithms, right? So the the emphasis is more on the delivery systems of the content than the content itself. And I was just wondering if you could if you could elaborate on on this notion. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of goes back to what I was just saying that that, you know, at this point, we've kind of achieved, you know, the monkeys and typewriters scenario uh, with, you know, the number of people generating the, the volume of content on on these sort of user-generated content platforms or what the industry calls like the UGC platforms, right? So whether you're talking about Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the way on down, hundreds of these different platforms, there's, you know, billions of users creating, you know, just unbelievable volumes of content. So there's sort of an infinite sea of content to choose from. And the power in terms of shaping people's realities is in the algorithms that choose from that content what to present to those users hmm. um, and and of course there's inputs from the users themselves who they choose to follow etc but but leaving it up to the user is not nearly as lucrative as measuring what that user responds to and then selecting from that sea of content in an automated and you know highly scaled way uh, to show them stuff that they might not even know that they want to see and then, and then that's much, you know proven to be much more effective at keeping them on platform. And so, so the real power in 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 any of these in, or in this information environment lies in what the sort of architects of those algorithms have chosen to prioritize. And you know, there's been recent revelations thanks to the Facebook whistleblower that, you know, in Facebook's case, they chose to award more kind of algorithmic points to anger, angry reactions, and things like that than they did to positive reactions like likes. Mm. Mm. And so. Um, you know, it just goes to show you that the decisions that the architects of these algorithms make affect, you know, the entire global discourse. Mm-hmm. And and the biggest problem that I argue in that piece is that is that those companies that architect those algorithms have have because of this sort of regulatory carve out here in the U.S. this sort of this this gift to the industry, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, have this blanket kind of liability waiver, meaning mm. they can make those algorithms, they can, they can make any choices they want with regards to those algorithms. They can even kind of 
know, and this is what the Facebook whistleblower has revealed, is that they can even be very well aware of the kind of harm to users and harm to society that those choices are 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 mm. are, are having, uh, and and still choose to make them and have no consequences from a mm. product liability perspective. And it is really the only industry mm. uh, in in the world right now that, or at least in the U.S. for sure, that has like essentially no product liability. You know, if, I always joke, uh, you know, if our if our cars worked as well as our computers, we'd all be dead, right? But the reason <laughs> that's true is because our, you know, the car manufacturers have liability. Mm. You know, when when the when when Toyota vehicles had this kind of weird problem of the gas pedal getting stuck, and you know, people not realizing they can put it into neutral, right? The the government hauled the CEO of Toyota in front of Congress. You know, read him the riot act, and suddenly all of us Toyota owners were getting you know, recall notices to zip tie our floor mats to our seats. Like that's mm. that's because there's actual product liability mm-hmm. for automobiles, and that's why our cars work better than our computers, and that's why we're not all dead. Well, I think we're <laughs> at the point where it's pretty clear that you know what happens on Facebook is still very real and still very harmful, mm-hmm. and and Facebook knows it, right? They that mm. that was what the the whistleblower revealed that that Facebook knows that this is happening they know that the algorithmic choices that they've made uh you know are having kind of harmful consequences to their users and they chose to make them anyway and have mm. no and we have no legal recourse because of this carve out so so that's what i argue in that piece is that the algorithms are really where it lies really where the power lies and it's and it's completely unaccountable power at this point and mm. that's what needs to change and so um i'm hoping by the time you know this airs that we've made some progress in the regulatory world towards reforming 230 and, and actually, you know, and actually making some basic steps towards product liability. What are some of the reasons that this issue of, let's call it algorithmic responsibility or responsibility for, for algorithms went uh, unaddressed for such a long time? Usually when you enter the debate about, you know, Facebook, YouTube algorithms, um digital inter- intermediaries you usually got the first response that you got from let's say politicians or from i like to call them techies was that okay no technology is neutral technology cannot you know it's not the tech it's the user now we're seeing that you know slowly but surely through whistleblowers revelations and and other um elements we can see that the user is basically irrelevant right that the tech is running the show from from start to finish and user is basically not in the driving seat what made this uh, mantra of neutral tech so sustainable uh, up until now why why didn't it uh, blow up uh, let's say before it's a really interesting question and i think it has to do with culture as much as any. i mean i would say it's it's it's, it's culture and marketing <laughs> that that I think these platforms, you know, at the kind of highest tiers of these platforms, they understood, they understand the power of these algorithms in in capturing people's attention. They understand. I mean, in the startup world, there's an entire industry uh, of you know product and startup gurus who talk about you know building sticky products, building addictive products, right? You know, dopamine hits and 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 there's part of the industry, the tech industry, that's really deeply picked apart how this works, and and how effective it is. And they've made literally, you know, 
world historic levels of money uh, uh, implementing it. And so mm. there's, a, there's a huge amount of kind of, uh, uh, of power and inertia in that and, and, and a huge kind of interest in preserving these, these, these insanely lucrative business models. Um, that I argue by as an aside you know, only exist because of this liability carve out. Um, but but I think that they and so so they had sort of this vested interest in preserving this business model and in order to preserve it, kind of had to wage a, a what amounts to kind of ironically a disinformation campaign, you know, similar to oil companies, you know, arguing mm. that they're not causing climate change, et cetera. Or, or you know, BP, you know, rebranding to this, you know, bright green, sunny logo, you know, at the end of the day, like they're still causing these problems. But, but it was, it's a big sort of, you know, public relations campaign to to draw attention away from that fact, away from the power and the the, the harms of these algorithms, and toward something else. And those something else was a combination of sort of. Uh, capitalizing on on the 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 tech optimism, right? That that you know this 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 mythology that that the the engineers in hoodies that in Silicon Valley are so brilliantly smart, and and you know us us normal folk couldn't possibly understand the complexity of what they were doing, but don't worry about it. You know how could a bunch of you know kids in hoodies in you know rooms full of primary colors and Legos you know, be doing anything bad. So clearly mm. it's not their fault and they're doing great, brilliant, world-changing things and they're celebrated and, you know, everyone wants to be the next Silicon Valley. Mm. And then, you know, and 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 we're receptive to that. You know, we culturally love, you know, to, to celebrate. And even to this day, you know, Amazon is one of the most loved brands in the world. People love that company. And yet, mm they engage in this kind of activity, you know, probably more than more than more than any others. And so, mm. you know, <clears throat> I think they they capitalized on that cultural disposition to to view the techies as, you know, a benign force for good. Um, you know, and then and then uh, and so I think that 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 sort of cultural predisposition uh, is is what they is what they used. And then and then, like I said, the second part of that was then pointing the finger at the user saying, you know, as long as we're talking about going after individual users, deplatforming, here's, you know, 900 accounts we kicked off this month. It's like, who cares, right? <laughs> I think the lesson to me in in the recent months of, you know, the saga of of Donald Trump, not to not to sort of bring up the the, you know, the name, you know, he who shall not be named, so to speak, but like the the most interesting thing about that saga is that for all of the for all of the hand wringing about you know censorship etc right once he lost access to the facebook newsfeed algorithm and to the twitter and you know the twitter uh, timeline algorithm etc like he was nobody right and when he once he started publishing his own website then no one was going to it right the, because the algorithms weren't promoting it it was basically getting so little traffic that he himself shut his own website down Right. So like no one's no one told him he can't say anything. It's just that without the algorithmic power of the news feeds, you know, pushing traffic to his messages, you know, he he suddenly was was no one and no one knew what he was saying anymore because he had this obscure blog on his own website. And, mm. and to the point where he, you know, he and his team decided, well, this is not worth anyone's time. And, you know, for all the cries about censorship, they took their own site down. 
Mm. Right. And so mm. I think it, it speaks to all of this talk about the users is really kind of a straw man argument. It's a, it's a distraction. It's a way of claiming victory while still getting away with causing the problem, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that's, that's, that's what shapes the conversation and it's taken our entire community, you know, culminating at least right now with this, with, uh, you know, Francis Hogan, the Facebook whistleblower to kind of finally start to change the conversation. Um, mm. And, and I think, you know, uh, you know, however many dictatorships later, <laughs> however much, you know, authoritarian rise in the world later, that we're finally slowly realizing that the destructive power of these algorithms, at least in the most important regular, you know, sort of policymaker circles. Mm. And and that's what's changing. But but boy, has it taken, you know, years of us, uh, this <laughs> broader community in every, in, in every corner, kind of, you know, hammering on this message and saying, like, stop believing them, it's not true. Before we move on to the these regulatory issues that are happening on on let's say both sides of the ocean, I just wanna I just wanna sort of ask the same question in the in a slightly different way. So, what's the uh, where along the learning curve from you know changing the perception of tech is the best thing that ever happened to us to tech is literally killing us? where are we on this uh, on this scale right now so are there still some let's say uh, i'm not going to say naysayers but some but some tech supporters that are that are still clinging to tech is neutral it's all your fault you know the user is responsible for what he or she clicks online or did we finally you know disperse with the notion that you know dark patterns and other things shape perception of digital environment more than the user behavior or knowledge or background or whatever yeah I'm, I'm not i think we're somewhere in the middle i think that that you know there are more and more of us in more and more places who are having that kind of realization and and, and really starting to understand that but as far as we've come we still have a long way to go you know so i think the tide is changing i think you know but it's still a tide, right? Which means mm. it's still a massive ocean that we have to move. And and so the work is very much not done. So, I mean, it's hard to say where in the middle we are. We're, we're certainly kind of going in the right direction, but but I think we're still very much in the middle. I think, I think we still have a lot of awareness to raise and a lot of uh, sort of evidence to gather and present. And and like I said, the, there's a huge amount of inertia. I mean, mm. these, these, these businesses that have mastered this game are, are some of the largest market cap stocks in the world. And which means that, you know, every single one of us who owns a mutual fund or an ETF or, you know, has a retirement account has some exposure to this business model and thus will be affected, mm. you know, as that business model changes. And so mm. when something like that affects the whole world, it, you know, it's gonna take a long time to get it changed, to fix mm. it. Um, and it's not impossible and history has shown that we can and we have other kind of equally, if not even larger challenges ahead of us, all, all of which, you know, include, you know, for example, climate change are tied to this problem of us kind of having a shared reality and, and you know, and preserving the, the, the enlightenment itself, which is which is what I think is at stake here. Mm. But which but I, yeah. sorry, go ahead. sorry, no, just go. Well, I was just going to say that that. So we're somewhere on that journey. I don't know if we're, you know, 50% or 40% or 70%, but, but I, you know, I don't think we're done for sure. Mm. 
And I think mm. there are still plenty of people who, who are just is just dawning on them, you know, and and mm. and so now is the time to double down and 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 really kind of press hard on that education. So that would be my next question, right? So currently we have two, um, let's say, um, two entities, I mean, the USA and the European Union trying to address this issue from a, from a legal perspective or from a regulatory perspective, which so the 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 us is is uh, pushing for you know anti um um the word slipped my mind so uh anti uh, oligarchic or uh, anti monopolistic um legislature right, antitrust, uh, antitrust, yeah, yeah antitrust sorry right. yes no, okay. <laughs> blank yeah, yeah, yeah. and and the other one uh, the other one is in european union with you know the digital service act which is trying to address the issues around the problem or the problems around the issue uh, with responsibility with uh, uh, with uh, moving away from this singular point of uh, regulatory model where the whole thing got bogged down by you know basically irish dpa where all of these companies are registered mm -hmm. so which of those two approaches do you see as more let's say effective so is it is it more of a question of you know break them apart and keep them separated or is it more a question of effectively regulating and effectively fining uh, uh, their um, let's say their mishaps in in the digital world I, I don't I don't think it's an either or question I think it's you know all of the above you know I think mm. I think what what the sort of the crisis of the last I don't know what six years or eight years or whatever has has demonstrated is that we're in the world needs to reform you know the whole tech industry and the business model etc and and that mm. it's not going you know the, these business models are so lucrative and there's so much entrenched power and and money at stake that that they're not going to regulate themselves despite what they like to say and so mm. they're you know this is this is the sort of the moment to to you know to to remind kind of the world of you know democratically elected government uh, sovereignty, mm. um, and so to me it's not a you know is is it antitrust or is it DSA or DMA or whatever? Mm -hmm. It's really it's really you know to me falls in three three areas right that will that will address all the parts of this. Right? The first is as you say antitrust right these companies mm -hmm. are. Are huge and anti-competitive and in healthy markets, a lot of these kind of uh, externality sort of style problems would kind of take care of themselves. I mean, we at at the Global Disinformation Index have observed that in the parts of, for example, the ad tech market where there's still healthy competition, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a a clamoring to implement solutions. To, to mm. better serve their customers, the advertisers, but in the parts of the market that have essentially monopolistic control, uh, you know, there's a lot of inertia and sort of n no urgency required. I mean, you know, in mm. the summer of of this past year, when um, uh, or sorry, two summers ago, when when you know, hundreds of the largest brands on the web, uh, you know, were boycotting Facebook. Um, uh, you know, and uh, and and saying that you know Facebook had to do more about this problem or else they weren't going to mm. advertise on Facebook anymore. You know, I mean, Facebook on you know, Zuckerberg's on records saying that he and Facebook are defiant in the face of this customer revolt. I mean, any business <laughs> that I mean, that can afford to 
you know, be defiant of hundreds of their most high profile customers, right? And and I'll point out that, you know, Facebook will like to point to the fact that even that quarter their revenue went up, right? And and mm. and that's in part because or entirely because their business model is in the kind of the long tail, meaning, you know, millions of smaller advertisers who didn't participate in the boycott mm-hmm. are, are are the bulk of Facebook's revenue, but they it, that's all because those smaller advertisers don't have the market voice or the market power to to stand up for anything. I, I bet you all of those smaller advertisers basically agreed with Patagonia and North Face and you know all the other brands that participated in the boycott. They just they didn't have any other options. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. nice, but I still have to sell my yoga mats or whatever, and so I'm still have to you know advertise here because it's the only place I can. That is like a clear indication of you know too much market power, right? Mm. You know, this whole like, you know, we're, we're all indicate like all these so-called venture capitalists are, are, are monopolists at heart. Um, mm. And many of them, including you know, people like Peter Thiel are, are on record saying that they, they, they love to own monopolies because that's all the market power. Mm. So I think, you know, antitrust is, is a huge part of it. And that is probably the most mature conversation here in the U S and, and I'll, and I'll point out, by the way, you talk about, you know, what's most effective. Mm. The, the EU is certainly further out ahead, and and in the next area like privacy, right? I mean privacy has a huge tie in here, both because the, the the private data that these companies collect is the the fuel that feeds these algorithmic fires, but also because the the, the massive privacy violation that is surveillance based advertising, you know, has essentially gutted the media business model. I mean, if you follow the work of people like Johnny Ryan, um, and and whatnot, you see that that there's a you know that that when that audience information at a publisher is not kind of you know held sovereign and it's just given to these to these platforms and broadcast out to or these exchanges and broadcast out to these DSPs, like mm. publishers lose control of their only kind of monetizable asset, which is that audience. And so mm-hmm. you know the fact that like BuzzFeed, which has one of the the the, the, the largest reaches of any of news site can't afford to keep their journalists on staff and laying people off like it just tells you that there's that there's something more fundamentally wrong and, and that comes down to privacy so the eu has been much obviously much more um kind of further ahead in the conversation around regular regulating privacy and i think that you know another piece of this is is you know a u.s privacy law that's at least as strong as gdpr if not stronger mm. but but the challenge is, and so all the powers in the U.S. because these companies are ultimately American companies that are doing this, and so it's really up to the American government to to keep its house in order. But that's also a challenge because these are very lucrative and and, and kind of popular U.S. brands, and and this industry has long been lauded as the kind of the future, and and you know so many other cities in the U.S. are clamoring to be the next Silicon Valley, and and so. So it, it's a lot harder in the U.S. to kind of build a sort of public support to regulate these companies that are so loved and so celebrated and and, and whatnot. And so, mm. so it's simultaneously where the power lies and where the inertia is as well. Um, and then the last area, as I talked about, is the platform liability reform and and, and mm. revising 230. So I think the three of those areas: antitrust, privacy, and platform liability. If you if you if you reform just that, you've you've solved the problem of tech reform as far as I'm concerned. 
Mm. Which brings us in the last part of our conversation, I want to talk about your work at Global Disinformation Index. So you focus on the ad tech and addressing the issues of algorithms, of uh, relationships between brands and uh, advertising platforms. And first off, how's that going? How are um, advertisers and, and uh, brand managers responding to this address that they're partially or that they're co-responsible for the issue of hate funding for you know money flowing into into propaganda outlets via these uh, digital uh, digital advertising networks is there some uh, reflection or is this some note of awareness that uh, that uh, they are responsible or co-responsible or is it just you know blank wall. <laughs> um, when we first started this journey years ago, you know, it was, we were sort of at the bottom of the mountain and, and it, it was just sort of, what are you talking about? You know, I, I pay for ads. How is that? How does that have any, anything to do with, with all this problem? And, you know, even just understanding what is disinformation, um, you know, was really where we had to start was defining the problem because a lot of folks was, were saying, well, isn't it just, you know, some crazy website that says Hillary Clinton's from Mars or something. I mean, clearly that's mm. absurd, right? And we had to we had to explain kind of our view of disinformation through the lens of, of what we call adversarial narrative conflict, where it's not it's not about whether some you know some individual piece of content is fact checked to be true or false. And you know, while I I, I absolutely support the work of fact checkers, et cetera, like it's just not enough. And and the reason is is that the problem of disinformation is not a problem of you know someone lying on the internet because if it was we'd be all clamoring to to uh, you know deplatform Santa Claus like I, I mm. hate to, I hate to disappoint any of you know our <laughs> listeners out there but you know we're going to censor this part Santa right. Claus is real. <laughs> exactly but like but like Santa Claus is a deliberate lie we tell on the internet every year and and there's you know and and no one's no one's clamoring to deplatform the NORAD Santa tracker and that's fine right? because. Because there's nothing harmful, there's nothing adversarial about it. But there are plenty of ways people can take, you know, kind of cherry-picked elements of the truth, and and turn those into, you know, adversarial narratives that 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 are essentially disinformation. I mean, a famous example is the the former kind of immigrant crime section of Breitbart News, where they would take individual local news stories about petty crimes that happened to be committed or people that, that were committed by people who happen to be immigrants and just sort of strung them together under this headline of immigrant crime. And I mean, it was essentially telling this implicit story or you know, implying this narrative that, uh, that itself is misleading, that immigrants disproportionately commit crimes. I mean, if I only show you the crimes that immigrants commit, you're going to say, well, Im immigrants must commit crimes, when in fact, statistically speaking, it's the other way around, right? Immigrants are disproportionately less likely to commit crime. Hmm. By cherry-picking elements of the truth, I've told this misleading narrative. More importantly, that narrative is adversarial in nature against immigrants. So it's, it's, it's an anti-immigrant narrative. Uh, you know, narratives can can be adversarial against any kind of at-risk group or individual. You know, uh, you know, or or against institutions like science or medicine or or democratically elected governments, etc. Um, and and most importantly, it creates a very clear risk of harm. Right, that's the kind of content that drives anti-immigrant violence and hate speech. And you can draw a very clear line between, you know, somebody reading up on all the crimes that immigrants are committing and then going to some garlic festival with a gun and trying to shoot all the people that they think are immigrants right and mm -hmm. and 
you know, in order to quote protect the world from them, all this, you know, it, it's it's a very clear creation of this risk of harm, uh, yeah. and and so anywhere you have those elements, right, an intentionally misleading narrative, often implicit and often created using cherry picked elements of the truth, right, like like Tom Wheeler didn't say that. 5G mm. doesn't cause cancer, right? Like, no, he didn't quite say those words, but doesn't make it true. Mm. And then, mm. you know, where it's sort of adversarial against an at-risk group or individual or institution, and, and most importantly, creates a risk of harm, like that's disinformation to us. And so the first step on our journey was educating the industry. And we're still on that journey, that that is, that that is disinformation, right? That it goes well beyond, you know, this sort of simple, true, false test, fact checkers, et cetera. And into this realm of like, is it creating a, 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 an adversarial narrative that 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 risks harming some group or individual? Mm. And and so that's the first part of the, the journey. And then once we once people have understood that, you know, there's I think at this point a very strong awareness through the work that we do and and the work, frankly, that others in the space do uh, to raise awareness of this problem. I think the challenge is really that because of these more structural market issues, you know. The advertisers say, well, we're trying and we do what we can, but there's only so much they can do. Part mm -hmm. of it was they didn't have the data to do something about it. And that's the specific thing we set out to solve at GDI was sort of catalog the open web and identify, you know, the sites that 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 we thought were not brand safe that they should avoid in this category. And that that's what we partner with all of our kind of ad tech partners at this point at, at this time right now, at least to 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 help them with. You know, but part of it is just the ability to do that, especially when you go down market to some of the smaller advertisers. They kind of say, well, look, I just I have to go to Google. I have to go to Facebook and I have no uh, while I want to do the right thing. I don't have the resources or ability to, to implement that change. And I don't have the market power to 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 steer these these behemoth platforms. And that's mm -hmm. that's why it gets into the rest of our conversation around, you know, market structure, et cetera, because at this point, you know, the advertisers, I think, do have awareness and they want to do the right thing, but they can only do so much on their own. Mm. And we're, we're succeeding in the parts of the market where they do have power, but there are still plenty of parts left where they don't. But but don't you so so addressing this issue, even we focus on on this as well from from the local EU or let's say the Balkan Slovenia perspective. And usually the, the feedback we get from from advertisers is is either that they don't want to so they they feel that advertising is not connected with the content. So we're just showing ads. We're not responsible for the content of the website, and right. they miss a point of budgets providing funding for the media production. But another thing that that's that's often that often comes up in in the in the discussions is exactly what you said. You know, the long tail or the 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 part where they feel that they even if they do something they're just going to basically hurt themselves right they're going to pull ads from right. a website that shows other ads as well so they'll be they'll be you know pushing the the competition ahead and at the same time they won't do it won't mean anything because it's the internet you know money has to come from from somewhere so would you say that this is one of the issues where acting locally means something in the global scheme of things or is this a thing that has to be decided between let's say the the, the u.s president the uh, the eu commission and the three biggest uh, um, ad tech uh, ad tech companies in the world um i think it's both i i hesitate to kind of predict how it's going to go and say that one part is more important than the other i, I think 
that that you know regulation lags public opinion and uh it was a, a lesson that i learned early on and so you have to have the the act locally part first uh you know where or where the voice has to be, at least be heard even if there's nothing they can do they at least have to you know take a stand and make and make make you know, add add their voice to the mix in order to to ultimately motivate those you know policymakers to make those decisions um so i think it takes both uh, and so i don't i, I don't want to say you know one we need one we don't need the other i think um i think they're you know the, the advertisers are partially kind of i mean i understand where they're coming from right they they have products to sell they have jobs to do um i will i i often remind our our our, our kind of buy side of the brand side partners that first of all it's not a huge swath of the internet that that mm. uh you know at this point it's probably on the order of you know a thousand to fifteen hundred sites total that we're talking about that cause you know pretty much the entire entirety of the problem at least on the open from the open website of things mm. and and so um and so you know i don't think they're going to be really limiting that themselves that much if they take you know take action at the individual level here um I, you know and so and at the same time some of these sites are highly lucrative but I, but i'll say also that you know it, it kind of calls into question the entire programmatic advertising business model which i think is worth questioning where where you know how does it actually affect your outcomes you know from a sales perspective mm -hmm. and i think it doesn't and i'll also say that is it worth the risk right i mean there's there's plenty of data now showing that that the brand safety risk here is very real. That you know while while you're not responsible as the advertiser for the content, you're certainly at risk if that content is problematic enough that you know your your logo is showing up next to it, and there are plenty of people out there at this point who are going to see it and call you out on it, and mm. and it's going to negatively impact your brand. And so. I think there's an you know there's enough folks that understand this now that it is causing demand. And that demand is flowing up, and at this point, that demand is just hitting a wall, where, you know, where it hits hits these business models that are that are that that continue to remain, you know, indifferent or defiant. Mm. Okay, uh, I think that wraps it up. So uh, thanks so much for for taking the time to to talk with us. Um, best of luck to your endeavors in the Global Disinformation Index uh, campaign. Uh, here's hoping that you know the awareness gets to the point where the regulators kick in and we finally lock down this problem once and for all and hopefully <laughs> find another interesting problem to to address in the future absolutely well thanks for having me and thanks for all the work that you all do as well and for these these great questions because it, it really will take all of us um and and take all these voices together to, to change things so thank you excellent thanks